HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. I love New York. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio. It's Tuesday, October, what's the day today, Chris? 12th, 2021, and it's our 600th episode, and I'm very excited to be in Boston at the new Notch Brewing at Charles Speedway in Brighton, which is next to Austin. Some of you know Austin from Deep Ellum, which was a great craft beer bar, and it's my first time out here at the new Charles River Speedway. Um, We're talking about traditions. Uh, Yesterday was the Boston Marathon, which was pretty special. We came in today. There's a lot of people with the shirts on, and there's a lot of uh, meaning for the Boston Marathon, especially since so much has happened in Boston and and in America the last year or so. Um, I'm also going to give a shout-out to our co-host, our host um, of Cutting the Curd. Unfortunately, Ann Saxby, a very dear friend, passed away this weekend, Um, and we just want to give just a special shout-out to her as a very important person in our food community and – a pioneer of the American farmstead cheeses in New York. And my message uh, is her legacy is in everything around us, food we eat, people we know, memories of taste like Dale and Moses Sleeper. We will never forget much love. Okay, so that's a big cheers to uh, Ann Saxelby. And now we're going to start our show here, 600th episode. Uh, thanks so much for Heritage Radio Network for keeping us on the air every week for 12 years. So our guest today, uh, he's going to take it away and introduce himself. This is Chris of Notch Brewing. Chris, so great to see you, man. And congratulations on opening this place. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. It's, a, it's an honor to be the 600, uh, well, not guest, but on the 600 episode. And uh, thanks for being here in Brighton, our second taproom brewery in, Bo- in, uh, in Massachusetts, in the Brighton neighborhood of Boston. Um, been here uh since july we were supposed to open a long time ago but covid halted construction and you know we can all sing the sad songs of what we've all been through but that was a challenge but here we are and we're open and i uh, feeling good about it i'm really ha- glad to have you here and look forward to talking more about decoction and other fun things well what's exciting is that uh a year ago i i, I got to see you during covid in salem and i got to taste this beer right. the pitch lined pills which is kind of mythical I don't think anyone else is making it. And it just worked out that today 
the day after the Boston Marathon. I'm here in Boston. And so, Chris, tell us about this beer. You are the only person making it in America. There's a long history, and, and you can talk as much as you want because this beer is worth seeking out. I, I appreciate it. This project has been something I've wanted to do for a long, long time. And uh, as the deeper I got into it, the more I realized it wasn't just about uh, a check process. Uh, it was more about the history of beer. It's, it's an amazing, amazing um, path that we went through to, to discover that you know, previous to stainless steel and aluminum metals being used in brewing, every brewer in the United States and the world used wood for fermentation vessels, for conditioning vessels, lagering tanks, and for service, kegs. And none of these brewers wanted the wood to come in contact with the beer. The beer has tannin and, and character that they felt had a negative influence over the beer. And this is a time during basically, you know, Pilsner and Pale Lager. So the uh, fermenters were lined with a varnish, typically open. And, but the lagering tanks and kegs, the serving vessels, were pitch lined. Pitch is a combination of paraffin and resin. Each brewer had their own cocktail and where they sourced it. But basically that pitch was heated and then coated on these vessels to protect it from the wood. Um, and then, uh, you know, have some uh, oxidation uh, prevention as well. Uh, so when I started thinking about this, it was really from one source. If we all remember the Michael Jackson's Beer Hunters series. I was in college when that came out. So that dates me quite a bit. I mean, most people weren't born when that came out. Never mind drinking beer. So I saw this episode when he was in the Czech Republic and then in Pilsen and went to the went to Pilsen Kell Brewery in the late 80s. And he saw the process in place previous to them going to stainless steel where everything was open fermented uh, in wooden uh, locker, lacquer varnished uh, fermenters. And then everything was lagered for three months in large wooden uh, oak vessels that were pitch lined. And he went through the whole process in this and I was fascinated by it. Uh, and that, that's been somewhat retired. Uh, Pilsner Kell still does that just to show how the process used to go, but all their production has been shifted stainless. But some small producers in Bohemia and Bavaria still do this. And this is something I was always in, in, enthralled with, and, and just from a process standpoint, because as a brewer, I love process. So, you know, fast forward to 10 years ago when I started Notch, I was in uh, Prague and I met up with Evan Rail, uh, beer writer, um, travel writer for New York Times, and we started talking about this process. We were at this bar uh, brewery in downtown Prague called Udmidviku um, at the Three Bears, and they were doing this process. We talked a lot about it. And one thing that Evan talked about was um, that the pitch would wear away, and they would have to repitch the barrels over a, a period of time. And we got to the conversation of, well, the pitch is going somewhere, right? It's going into the beer. And so what is the influence of the pitch? What is the influence of the pitch on the beer? It must have some. Uh so this started my whole thought of like, well, I really want to, find, I want to figure this out. I want to, I want to do this process. Uh, so four years ago, uh, Brianne Allen joined Notch as a production manager. And so the two of us kind of brainstormed how are we going to do this. So the two of us um, started on this, this path of finding pitch, brewer's pitch, and then finding barrels to be able to uh, withstand carbonation, like beer barrels, not whiskey barrels, not wine barrels, not food. None of those can withstand carbonation. Uh, to be able to actually condition this uh, in, in the barrel. And so we uh, had been purchasing some equipment, um, Franconian, Stitchfoss, and all the 
sundries that are required to, to do that. It's basically a German gravity cask. And it, so we became friends with this gentleman, Tom Clark, out of Berwick Brewing in Pennsylvania. And he's going to hate that I may be saying his name because he wants to be, you know, in the wings and not known because he doesn't want to give away any information. But we became uh, you know, friends with him. And he had, and this is where this really goes off the rails into like a long history of, of, of uh, brewing in, in, in history. Go for it, man. I've probably lost half your viewers, uh, your listeners already. So Tom had equipment from the Vernon Valley Brewery, which was in northern New Jersey, that in the late 80s, the owner imported an entire Bavarian brewing system, which included open wood vats, um, lagering vessels of wood that were pitch lined. And they had this process at a place called Action Park in New Jersey. And Action Park is legendary as one of the most unsafe amusement parks ever built. And that's a, a whole other story. But anyways, this brewery existed for about four or five years and made wonderful beer, but didn't, get, didn't make it. They were way ahead of the curve. I mean, not in craft beer, but just like making, you know, traditional Bavarian uh, Bohemian lager. So Tom had a bunch of this equipment stored away for years and years and years. And he said, hey, you know, I got some of these, you know, basically wood barrels that, are, that you can pitch line. You can come get them from my brewery in Pennsylvania. So Brian and I, you know, hopped in my, my pickup and, and drove down on this exploration. So I asked Tom, I said, well, we also need the pitch. We, we need, and also kind of need to know how to effing do this. He goes, I, I can teach you. So he had pitched... Not from Bavaria, not from Bohemia, not from Czech Republic. He had it from the old Paps Brewery in Milwaukee that was making Ballantine under contract for a number of years. And Ballantine was open fermented in wood vats and then lagered the triple uh, X, not the triple X, but the uh, their IPA was lagered in pitch line barrels. So this is fascinating history to anyone who wants to geek out about this. So Tom was part of the decommissioning team at the Paps Brewery, maybe late 80s, and basically had a bucket, a five-gallon bucket of pitch that he saved all these years. So we were able to grab um, these historic Bavarian uh, wooden vessels that Vernon Valley used, bring them to Notch in Salem, along with pitch from Milwaukee, and started coating these barrels. And then we took our Czech Pilsner, uh, the standard, and we basically lagered in these, in these barrels uh, for a period of time. And we've been doing this now. This is the fourth iteration. It's basically four months every single time we do this. So it's, it's been production-wise, three years. Serving-wise, two years we've been doing this um, to, to find out the influences of pitch in the beer. So, I mean, a lot of questions come up in this, right? And people are probably raising their hands already. Why do you do this? Um, if you're not going How many barrels do you actually make of this? We all, so right now, it's, we have on order a lot more from Bavaria because we want to expand this. We're, they're on order, and COVID's held that up, but they're on order to expand this, this uh, whole production process. Right now, it's a very small amount. We have a one 200-liter and one 100-liter one wooden barrel that we pitch. Um, so it's only about six kegs you know, per batch. And it, it's more labor hours per beer than any beer in the world. But you know, again, a labor of love and exploration on hit brewing history and, and Czech brewing. So you know, uh, we've gone through iterations of repitching every time, not repitching, feeling what the influences are on the pitch. And what we've landed on is, um, one, the pitch has influence. As an influence that's not, influence that's not unlike a hop. Uh, it's bitter. It's resiny. Um, it's pleasant. Uh, and you know, the extended lagering time definitely doesn't hurt that we lager these for four months. Uh, so right now, uh, the batch that we have out, the version we have out, is a freshly or newly um, pitched barrel. So the influence of the pitch is going to be at its height. And that's the one we prefer because we can taste it. 
you can have you can repitch uh, because the pitch will still be intact, but it won't have the influence or the impact that a newly pitched barrel will have. And it's a wonderful beer. It's lagered really clean and great, but you don't really taste the pitch as much. And that's what happened in the third iteration. And so we're like, all right, why are we doing this if you can't taste the pitch, right? Um, so we're now uh, going to repitch every single time. Chris, let's just go back. Um, the pitch. So it, it this tastes like something between one of your lightly smoked beers, like a Schlankala Hellas, and, and almost like a hop. Is that the influence of the pitch? I mean, I don't think you're far off. I, I find less of a smoky character. Um, that might be the resiny character. And I find more of that kind of... Um, uh, bitterness that you would find uh, in a highly hopped um, uh, pilsner that would have a lot of front end, you know, first word or start of the kettle, or start of the boil uh, hop character, which is not unpleasant. It's really wonderful. Um, but uh, yeah, it's definitely, it, it takes it a definitely a degree away from our, our, the standard, which is our pilsner that is the, um, the base, the base of this beer. Uh, but uh, again, it, it is apparent. It's very much, it's very much there. Um, this is, very much at odds with what's been going on in craft beer in terms of brewers taking Pilsner and putting it in raw wood or toasted wood or a fooder and aging it there to see what the effects are. And I understand that path. You know, Brewers have that available. Why not try it? Uh, but I don't really like the effects of it. I, I hate – I like white wine. I like white wine a lot in Commonwealth Lager. Uh, I hate oaked Chardonnay. Like that 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 character to me is just, is very off putting, and I find a lot of the same character in the pale lagers that that touch oak. They just have this oak character to me. Is just I just I don't like it. It's it. So you think it's like they're trying to come up with fast solutions to adding new flavors? No, I just think a lot of American brewers like we have this. Why not try it? You know, it doesn't mean you should, but they can and they do. And I have had some fooder aged beers, or fooder fermented beers that are wonderful. I wouldn't call them a classic pilsner they go in a different category um but they are they do have their merits to to, to explore and try i don't really love them but a couple have been i i i found them pretty good uh local local brewery here lamplighter has done it and i've enjoyed those um threes out of new york has done it you know i've enjoyed a few of those again i'm not in love with them but i understand um why they're doing it i understand the reasons why and and um, you know, when I asked the brewers, like, what, what are you trying to achieve with this? And the, the, their um, answers are very, I mean, they're solid. Like, we're trying to achieve X, Y, or Z. Like, and those, that's not what I'm trying to achieve in the pitch line pills. We have different goals. That's what makes craft beer great, which we've, we can have different, you know, attacks on some of the same thing. But you know, I think what happened is a lot of brewers see wood, you know, in these old videos of Pilsner Kell, like, oh, it's wood-aged lager without really doing the homework. Like, well, there's actually another process in between putting the beer in that barrel, and that's the pitch line process, and that's the magic. So I came in early, and you were just setting up with your staff here at, at Notch Brewing, Charles River Speedway, Boston. You do a great job educating. I mean, this is a new beer, and, and you were you're answering their questions about this beer. Tell me what you told them about what the pitch is. Like, what is pitch? How is it sourced? Are you using the same old pitch that was sitting in, in your friend's tub for 30 years? Uh, so pitch um, is, a, is a combination, again, of, tree, of uh, pine resin and paraffin. And brewers source the resin from various areas, you know, South America, Africa, Europe, eucalyptus trees, different types of variety of trees based upon what they were trying to achieve neutrality in the, in, in the pitch, maybe some flavor enhancement of the pitch. 
and the paraffin helped to kind of maybe bind that. And that, that cocktail, if you will, was different from brewer to brewer. The pitch we use, we have no idea what that cocktail is because it came from the Pabst Brewery for Ballantyne. And we'd have to go back to a historian that, that knew that, and I think that person's probably long gone. Uh, so we're still using that same pitch. So pitch can be reused. So when you, when you, when you um, repitch the barrel, what you basically do is heat the interior of the barrel um, so that that, pilt, that pitch melts away, and then you recapture that as much as you can. Uh, and then when you pitch the barrel, the excess you then recapture as well because it will solidify, and it basically looks like, I don't know, like a piece of amber, like it looks like a rock um, until you melt it. And so um, we're, not, we're not really sure. So again, we have more barrels in order and we actually have pitch coming from uh, uh, from Munich that we're gonna be using as well. Uh, and we'll, we'll probably see a difference in the pitch character that we had from this, this original source. So, so there are new sources. You're, you're not only, you're not gonna keep using the PAPS and if that runs out, you'll never be able to do this again. No, there are new sources. Um, it's, it's it's been a lot of work. I, since we've started doing this, I've had, I mean, a lot of brewers contact me saying, "Hey, where can I get the barrels? Where can I get the pitch?" And my response is typical of myself, where if I don't know you, I don't even answer the question. Never mind, like trying to give you information on it. It's like this has taken us so much time and effort and labor hours to get the resources to find it, and that's part of the fun. Part of the fun is actually doing the research, trying to find it, and trying to get to that. And not just someone handing to you, like, all right, here you go. And I'm not going to hand that to anybody. Um, if I know you, well, you're going to get a little more information out of me. I'll, I'll help you a little bit. But um, So we do have sources. And all it takes is traveling. It just takes going, going to the countries that where this is still done and, and, and just finding your way to it. Um, to the point where uh, I was in Franconia 2019 in the fall, just before everything you know, shut down and the world stopped. And I was able to source this pre-World War II pitch boiler, um, which I've yet to bring to the United States because COVID hit and I just don't have the time for it, but I've sourced it. Where the pitch boiler is basically, um, first level is a wood fire. The second level is the pitch reservoir. And in that pitch reservoir is a, is a piston assembly that is, that is uh, actuated by a foot pump to spray the pitch up to a spray ball into the barrel or cask. <laughs> so, the, and then about when was that made? God, it was probably made about 1920. Not sure when the last time it was made. So we can say 1920 was the heyday of, of pitch technology, right? Well, it's previous to, you know, stainless steel, you know, you know infiltrating uh, and brewing. But again, these, these projects for us, these are side projects for me that are fun. I really enjoy this. And uh, I've been on it for a long time and I love brewing and production brewing and I love everything about it, but I always want something on the side. Every brewer is going to say the same, keep you interested, keep your brain going, you know, pushing innovation, pushing cool things. And my innovation t tends to be like, oh, let's look back into history, what was already done and kind of like, let's pull from that. Um, rather than like, you know, what, what's a new ingredient we can toss at a beer? Like what's a process we can see that used to be done that we've lost through economies or you know, whatever, like new materials. Like I always, there, there were influences of processes that were very positive, decoction being one of them, that was removed because it was more efficient to do it another way. Okay, so when did you start doing decoction? Because you know, hear more people talking about it. Jeff Allworth's new uh, The Beer Bible Second Edition's out, and he talks about it. But five years ago, I didn't, no one else was talking about it. Well, decoction was something I've, I've wanted to do for a while, 
so my my career trajectory was that I became a, a English ale brewer in 1993 because I loved British ale. I loved cask ale, hand pump, Swan Neck versus London Neck, you know, sparkler versus no sparkler. I got into the minutia of cask beer. I loved it because I love process. And then um, the brewery I was with after 11 years sold to a competitor, and then um, you know, I got out of brewing for for a few years, and that's when I took the chip, trip to the Czech Republic in the mid 2000s. I was like, all right, I want to. Go, I, want, I want to go all in on lager because I really love it. I love session beer. Czech beer is typically session beer. Most lagers typically have low ABV, you know, good drinking, a beer hall, beer garden beer. And, and, so, and so through that, when I started Notch, um, it wasn't until we were five years into Notch that we um, were able to build a brewery. Because we had to prove out the concept of session beer first, and we did that. We we grew it a certain size, and then we built a brewery in Salem. And as soon as I knew we were going to build that brewery, I said, "All right, we're going to do lager like it was done in the old world: open fermentation, uh, multiple decoctions, horizontal lagering, natural carbonation, and then you know pitch lining as well." Uh, so th- th- there's the the, um, the 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 concept of a sunken cost fallacy where the more time and effort you put into it, the more you're going to believe that that was actually worth it when the reality, the result may not be that. So I always thought like, all right, I'm going to, I'm going to go all in into caution. And at the end of it, I'm going to realize it wasn't worth it. <laughs> but what we found is that that's not the case. I found that the caution has a positive flavor and aroma ad, uh, influence on beer uh, in a way I never imagined unless you did it. And I've heard a lot of brewers say, Hey, you know, decoction is not worth it. You don't need to do it. Two responses to that. One is your crutch to make sugar from malt, you don't need decoction, right? But that's not why we're doing decoction. We're doing decoction because of flavor. So I want to get into that a little bit more. You know, and the second is brewers who say you don't need it are typically brewers who can't do it, right? Because decoction brew house needs to be set up for decoction. You can fake it a little bit, but you're not going to, you're just fooling yourself into saying you're actually doing decoction, especially multiple decoction where you can pull, uh, mash, step it, boil it, return it, pull it, step it, boil it, return it. That multiple step process is really what influences. So what's decoction is what? It's just you're reboiling. So decoction is, is taking um, the uh, steps of mashing um, from, say, you know, protein, or before that, acid, protein, sacrification to mash off through those steps in a way that rather than just raising that temperature through a mash mixer, you're actually pulling the grain in a certain volume, typically a third, stepping that through the, the steps for that mashing program and finishing it in a boil. After boiling that, that mash, you then return it to the main mash to then step that up to that next mash level. So in that process, what's happening is that when you are boiling that mash, it's the Maillard reaction. It's a non-enzymatic browning process through heat on reducing sugars and protein. You're creating melanoidins. This is fact, right? So this is not some kind of like, oh, we're boiling the mash and we have, we, it has a positive influence on, the, influence on the beer. This is a real reaction that's happening when you're decocting, and that's going to have a flavor impact on the end, on the end beer. And so we, we found that. Is it subtle? Yeah, it's subtle. Is it impactful? It's impactful. Do most people notice? Maybe not. So I can see Bruce saying, well, 90% of my customers aren't ever going to notice. So why I'm going to do that? Fair argument. So I, I notice you, you do a great job of training your staff at the brewery, but you, you say you want them to be able to explain things to customers. 
how would they explain decoction to a customer saying, I'm getting this pills and it's decoction? I think from what I just said, the very base, base explanation is decoction creates melanoidins. Melanoidins have a positive flavor attribute in the beer. It gives, it a, it gives the beer a depth of flavor and aroma you can't otherwise achieve through either step or single temperature infusion. All right. Again, what I just said, the average consumer is going to look at you and be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. So, you know, unless someone comes in and really wants to understand, we don't even talk about it. You know, we'll throw in our menu, it's double decocted, triple decocted. But for most consumers, they don't care. And that's okay. They just know they're drinking delicious beer. One thing, one reason I wanted to come here, Chris, on the 600th episode of Beer Sessions Radio, is that I wanted to talk like this with you because as the industry is changing, the, the niche places, I mean, you're honestly, you're a niche brewery doing really great beer, but you're also the kind of beer that I want to drink like every day. So, so thank you for doing what you do. Let's go back to this pitch line pills because I feel like I'm the luckiest guy in the world. I got to try it two years in a row. Um, there was a question about the pitch. What is the pitch? Um, another question just is the, the barrels. Like, I mean, can you use any barrel? You mentioned something about the difference between what kind of barrels can you do carbonation in? I didn't understand that. That's a great question. Again, I, I learned a lot in this process. I didn't come into this. I came into this knowing nothing, but wise, eyes wide open, right? So beer barrels are different than wine barrels, than whiskey barrels, or even a fooder. So beer barrels have a very thick stave. So, so uh, the width of, of the stave is very, is very thick so that when that barrel is created, it can withhold carbonation. It can hold carbonation. It also can keep out the negative influences of oxygen coming through the wood into the beer. And so that was very, very important for us to find beer barrels and not just wine barrels or whiskey barrels. That would not have done it um, because all that lagering would have been done um, in an environment or in a barrel where that CO2 being created during the lagering process would have just gone to the atmosphere. So we would have lost our carbonation. We might have had some, some oxygen intake as well. And so that's not what we were looking for. So um, the beer barrel sourcing was very, very important. Uh, you can still find beer barrels being created, but they're by very small producers, artisanal producers in Czech Republic and in, in, uh, in Germany and of varying sizes. Most are pretty small. They're mostly for serving, uh, for stitch fast, you know, basically serving over the bar. But we've been able to source um, basically 200 liter versions of these, which are it's, it's enough scale that makes sense. We have we've, uh, eight 200 liter barrels coming in that we're going to be able to pitch and do, do this at, at, a, at a bigger scale than we're doing currently. Because you know, basically 200 liters every three months, it's, it's really fun, but uh, <laughs> it's nothing more than just a promotion, you know? And, and um, so we want to be able to do it with a little more regularity and a little more volume so more people can try it. Oh, this is great, man. I, I drank my pint. <laughs> is it a pint or a half, half pint? Liter. Half liter. Half liter of the pitch line pills. Um, you know, Chris, whenever I think about your beers, I know that if you run out of the pitch line pills, I'm going to be happy with what's next down the line. Um, what else is, is tell, I think we're going to take a break a minute and talk about Charles River Speedway. So let's just take a short break. We're going to uh, be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, 
outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. You can hear from the region's cider makers directly on HRN series Hardcore. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. Home of New York's craft cider, I love New York. Get started at visitithaca.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. Support us, become a member at heritageradionetwork.org. And a big, big, big hearty heaviness, um, big tears for uh, our friend Ann Saxby passed away this weekend. So we're going to raise a glass to her. And I'm celebrating the 600th episode. Partly thanks to her, I would not be on this network without Ann Saxby. So we're here with Chris uh, Chris Loring at Notch Brewing, the new place in Brighton, which is part of Boston. I've never been to. Chris, tell us about this Charles River Speedway. This is quite a place. I mean, I have not. A friend of mine, James Ty, said that's my favorite spot in Boston. So uh, Charles River Speedway. Uh, it's on the National Historic Register, and it was built in the late 1800s as the stables and offices for the Speedway racetrack that was along the Charles River um, for a number of years. And around about you know early 1900s, uh, the, the track was uh, demolished to make way for a uh, road, Soldier Field Road, uh, but the building uh, was kept intact. Uh, it was a number of things over the years, but then fell into disrepair about 20 years ago. Uh, the state owns it, and the state was looking to basically, you know, renovate the property uh, and, and activate it. So um, our landlord, which is Architectural Heritage Foundation, is a nonprofit um, that won the award from the state to be the landlord and basically renovate the facility, and they're going to hold it for 60 years. So uh, they asked us to be the anchor tenant. Uh, so I came down and took a look at it uh, maybe three years ago now. And I stood in what was the courtyard where the horses gathered before they went off to the racetrack. And I looked at it and said, this could be Bavaria. This could be Bohemia. This this beer garden could be something very, very special. Because even though you're in the city, it's surrounded by trees. And it's it's the entire facility surrounds the beer garden. So you don't know where you are. You can really picture yourself being anywhere. Uh, so we decided we wanted to be a part of it. And I'm really happy that we did. And that the renovation has been, because it's a historic property, has been you know very much on 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 cue in terms of keeping the historic integrity of the property. Uh, so for us, we have uh, we're one of a uh, few tenants, but we occupy the beer garden, which is basically 300 person capacity uh, daily. Uh, it's surrounded by uh, food stalls and retail shops. Very small scale. It's uh, three food three food stalls and three retail shops, uh, and then you know the brewery is on the anchor of that. Uh, we have a brewery here that we, um, it's fairly small. It's a seven-barrel brewery. It's augmented by production in Salem. But the only thing we brew here is is lager, and 90% of that's Czech lager. 
so we have a uh, decoction-capable uh, uh, brewery, open fermentation, the same thing we do in Salem. And then the difference is we serve directly from lagering tanks here. So our, uh, our four uh, Czech lagers that come through the, the Lucre Towers and Lucre Faucets that we have, um, and have had in Salem for five years. Yeah, the side pull. Uh, we were the second brewery in the United States to have those five years ago. I think Wayfinder beat, beat us by a few months. God love them. Um, and they're, they're somewhat ubiquitous now, but you know, for us, it was a labor of love to be able to, to import those from the Czech Republic. Um, so the, the lagering tanks, you know, then act as serving tanks as well. So we have eight lagering tanks um, to be able to you know, maturate and then condition and, and then serve. Uh, but it's a multi-use facility. So we have um, uh, behind us is a, an old garage that's used for music festivals, et cetera. The beer garden has a built-in stage with his live music and events on an ongoing basis. So it's an activated, pretty lively space. And it, it's been something that we've, uh, we've had a lot of fun, like, you know, seeing the uh, transition from this being dilapidated to it coming back to the, what it should be. And it's, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun area um, in, in Boston, um, you know, at the intersection of Brighton, Alston, Newton and Watertown. Uh, but we've only been open for, you know, three months now. It's been so far a wild success. Chris, what's cool about you is um, you reference check names, talking about places like Bohemia, Bavaria. Um, Just talk us through some of the Czech names. You mentioned what I call a gravity keg. You have a word for that. And the different types of of Czech lagers by color and strength. Just talk us through, because I I, I do know that it seems like your staff is familiar with them, and I'm not. So I I like to question a lot in that. So one of the things we wanted to do when we built, you asked about decoction, right? And so, yeah, so decoction was important and the process and the brewing was important. But the way we served it to me was just as important because if you travel to uh, Germany and Czech Republic, the way they serve the beer is just as important as the way they brew it. And what I saw a lot of times in the United States was this disconnect in production of these wonderful beers and how it was served. And in Germany, most of the beers in Franconia or even in, in Munich are served through Stichfass. Stichfass is basically um, a gravity cask where the beer is uh, racked or filled, filled in, in the barrel, uh, carbonated and bright, uh, but it's not pushed out with extraneous CO2 in a keg. It's tapped, and then it's, it's allowed to dispense through gravity, gravity pour. And the texture uh, is much different. Uh, it's not as prickly. It's, it's a little smoother. It can raise a degree or two in temperature, and the beer really shines in, in, that, in that service. In the Czech Republic... Most of the beer is served through uh, lucre faucets, which are these ball valve side pole faucets that create this dense, creamy, wet foam that you cannot replicate any other way. It's, it's very unique. Some people have called it a gimmick, but that's only those who don't really understand what's happening. Um, it's really a wonderful way to serve beer, especially um, uh, Czech Pilsner, uh, Amber Lager, and Dark Lager. Um, so for us, it was very important to be able to, to, to do those same things in the way we serve it, which is important as the way we, as the way we brew it. So and same thing, in, you know, in Brighton we have you know two two faucets of eight eight lucre, um, two two towers of eight lucre uh, faucets to be able to to to, to produce that. Um, so I mean, to your point, your question. So Czech lagers that we that we sell, we we just basically use the style name, and so that that's enough, right? We don't need to create fanciful names because Tamave, that's a name. Tamave's dark. Cherne, Cherne's black. So we have a dark lager, black lager. Pullet Mavi is a wonderful translation from half dark, which is amber. Um, so we have a Pullet Mavi as well. Um, and then our pale lagers, we have varying strengths. And, and the, the Czechs have this wonderful way of 
categorizing styles where they have the strength in Plato, 10, 12, 14, et cetera, and then color, pale, amber, dark. And then it's like a grid, you know, pick that grid and you can have something. So you can have a amber lager, you know, 14 degrees Plato or 10 degrees Plato, depending on the strength. And so we, we follow that kind of um, grid pattern uh, with, with Czech lager in the same way. So right now we have um, Tenor, which is a 10 Plato Czech pale lager. We have, well, right now, Pitchline Pills, which is a 12 Plato Czech pale lager. Pullet Mave, 11 Plato Czech pale lager. And then Tamave, which is a 12 Plato Czech dark lager. You know, 4%, 4.2%, 4.4%. So that's the difference. I mean, when you say Plato, you, in their tradition, they would understand the strength. But do you have to translate it into ABV for us to understand? We do. And uh, Plato is basically the density of the wort previous to fermentation. And so that's going to be a predictor of um, alcohol content you know, at the end of fermentation. And the Czechs kind of understand this. They know that 10 Plato beer is their session beer. 12 Plato is kind of like a standard strength. And 14 is strong. And 16 is like, whoa, get out of the way. I'm going to really you know, be careful here. And so we'll list that on, on the menu, but we also list the ABV. And you know, Czech beer is not strong. So even like their stronger beers are only, like, you know, 5% alcohol. Like it's, it's not a big beer. Um, but we'll go from, you know, 4, 4.2, 4.4. Um, we do have our Vol project line. Vol is basically uh, German for full strength. And so we'll do full strength beers under a different label so people don't, you know, confuse it with the, the session beers that we produce. That can be everything from a Fest beer. Uh, I just brewed a... Um, I checked dark lager or, or black lager, Chardonnay Special, which is going to be a 15 Play-Doh, like 5.7% beer. So we want to celebrate those stronger beers for the reasons they're, they're produced, but they have to be differentiated from our session beers that we produce so that people don't get in trouble. So your strong beer is 5.7 when that's some people's lagers, right? It is, but it's funny because you, you, our staff gets used to a certain strength. And the first year we had our Fest beer at 5.7%, in Salem, our staff was used to basically having half liters of liters of four and four four point five percent beer over the course of a couple of years. Then we came out with Fest beer at five point seven, and our staff got a little bit out of hand because they would just, they would drink it at the rate they would drink the, the lower strength beers, and they're like, "That's not good. We don't really enjoy that. We have to throttle back a little bit next year." So yeah, I mean, it's all like. Um, you know how you consume beer and your relationship with beer. Like, the United States is definitely a, a. We've moved towards a flight. We, people want to drink beer in flights or stem glass and drink them slowly, and that's fine. There's a place for that, but you know, check German beer. We're, we're not sipping, we're drinking. Right? We're not drinking to get inebriated. We're drinking for enjoyment, and there's a difference there. There's, there's a cultural difference. You know, that's a good point. I was thinking about you know drinking for enjoyment. I got 4.4%, even like a dry Irish style, it's like 3.5%. So um, I guess that means I get to come here and drink more beer, right? Well, I mean, that that could be a side benefit for us. But, uh, I mean, the intent is that uh, it's social. In in Salem and in Brighton, when you come in, every table is communal. You don't own the table, you share it. And during COVID, that was hard because we couldn't do that. And And COVID definitely put a wrench in the things we love to experience with our customers in terms of that, that communal aspect, but we're back there. Um, so, you know, in Brighton, community tables, beer garden, um, we have 36 communal tables um, that, you know, people can just come in and, and, and sit and, and chat and then strike up a conversation with the person next to them. 
And the fact that session beer allows you to stay longer. You know, it, you, there's no you know rush to go home. You, you can you can so you'll be okay. You know, you can have a few and you'll be okay. So we're here in Boston. I know in New York now, if you show your vaccination card, you can go anywhere indoors. I've been in theaters. I've, I've been in events. I've been in restaurants, and it feels like normal. It's almost like you're an insider club. Um, what does it require to, to come inside breweries and restaurants in Boston? Is there a mandate? So there are mandates in both Salem and Boston, you know, where our brewery and tap rooms are. They're consistent in that if you're going to come inside, you must have a mask. Once you start eating or drinking, you can remove the mask. Um, and that, that we, we're just following city, uh, city guidance in that. Now that um, our staff is fully vaccinated and company-wide, we have a vaccination mandate. And then even in Salem, we have, in addition to that, staff must be tested once a week because we have such a tourist trade in Salem to make sure we're all okay. And the staff's been great about that. But from the customer standpoint, um, we just ask you to follow the local city guidance. We didn't do that last year because there was, there was, not, there was not a vaccination and there was a lot of unknowns. Um, so Salem was not open inside for you know, over eight, 18 months. We had everything outside because until our staff could get vaccinated, we were not going to open inside. Um, and so we've been fortunate. Our staff you know, has, has, has been safe and they feel good about it. But yeah, I mean, it feels back to normal. It does because people now share tables. They feel confident and they're vaccinated. Both our tap rooms are very open air. We have garage doors and, and multiple windows that open and doors that open. And it's, it's, there's a lot of air. You know, what happens in the winter, I'm not really sure, but uh, vaccination rates are going up. Massachusetts Knocking Wood has been a very you know, positive, uh, accepting state for vaccinations. And so even if you, even if you have you know, gotten the virus, and, but you have been vaccinated, you know, the impact has been minimal. So we, f- we feel fortunate to be the state we're in. And Chris, what, what other, um, you know, issues or challenges have arisen, you know, now that COVID's been here for a year and a half? You have supply issues or production issues? Supply issues have been huge. You know, for us, um, a lot of what we do is obviously European influenced. And, you know, a lot of our materials do come from, um, do come from Europe in terms of our glassware to our grain. And it, it, it's, it's, been, um, it's been a challenge. Uh, we source most of our grain from the for our Czech beers comes from the, from the Czech Republic. We use Raven malt, and then our grain from uh, a grain for our German beers come from either uh, Bamberg, Malterie, or or Weiermann. Um, and you know we've had to go container for both of them direct, uh, and hoping that container can get to us uh, in a reasonable time. And there's been times where we had to shift production where like we couldn't get German grain, and we went to all Czech production for a while, and so our menu all of a sudden was all Czech. Like more than it usually is. <laughs> it's like, well, this is what we got to do. It's not a bad thing, right? Then I had to, then it shifted back to being you know heavily German because we couldn't get our check rain the way we wanted. But we've just been you know we've rolled with the punches and just we had a motto when 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 everything started we're just going to do the best we can, and, and that's all you can ask of anyone you know and hopefully you're and I think for the most part our our, uh, our customers have been you know very um forgiving understanding we're doing the best we can and we're providing the service that we can based upon labor shortages and all these kind of good things that, you know, we, we're, we've been able to achieve the, the quality we want. We don't always have the selection we want, um, but we definitely have the quality and, and people have recognized that. Chris, it's, it's great seeing you, man, because uh, definitely notch for me, always just, just the quality of your beers and the style have stood out your go-to place in, in Massachusetts, but also the way you've handled, you know, equity issues and, and, and staffing and other things. It's, it's not just really at the top 
top of the game up here in Massachusetts. One thing about Massachusetts is that there are some really great breweries. You know, it's a small state, but when I come up here, um, I have no problem drinking only Massachusetts. It was not always the case. And it was not always the case because the breweries weren't there. Is Boston's fairly transient. And so we didn't have a consumer base that valued local. We didn't for a long time. I, I've been a production brewer in Boston since 1993. And I saw the indifference to local beers for decades. Uh, and it, it took a lot to get over that. And a lot of it was the local beer bars. And I'll call them out. They didn't care about local beer. They wanted things from faraway places um, that had cachet in a way that would never relate to local. Where you wouldn't see that in Portland, Maine. You wouldn't see that in Burlington, Vermont. You wouldn't see that in Denver, Colorado. Um, and so it took a while to get there. And when it did, you know, breweries that were shut out from beer bars, all of a sudden, it's like, all right, we're just going to go direct to the customer. We're going to go direct to the consumer in cans and, and draft. And that was kind of the tipping point, um, you know, a bit to like, um, so like breweries, breweries kind of had to flex a little bit and say, hey, we're good. I know you may not want to serve us, but we're going to go direct to the, direct to the consumer. Notch has never been like that. We've always served most of our beer through beer bars, restaurants, and bars. And so we've always had that. That's the largest port of a portion of our business. And we really value that relationship. But a lot of breweries said, F it, we're going direct to the consumer. Um, and so there's that, that kind of tension between distributed beer and then, you know, basically direct to consumer model. But um, with that direct to consumer model, we've seen a lot of breweries being able to survive and thrive because they didn't have to go through the wholesale model. And so you're seeing 200 plus breweries now in Massachusetts with a lot of great beer out there, uh, consistent, you know, really great beer. And I, I, I see it, you know, I, there's a lot of places I can go and like, even like local footprint in Salem, you know, I, I can go to like, you know, a dozen breweries within, you know, 30 minutes and like be really happy with the beers I'm getting. It's, it's, it's really wonderful. I'm really glad to see that scene, that scene grow. And um, it took a while to get there. Massachusetts was behind the rest of the country in terms of breweries. It was always thought of as a good beer city, and I never, I never quite understood that because it wasn't. It, it took a long time to get where we are. Um, and obviously now with the England IPA, um, which is dominated in a way that may not be positive, but at least it got like the focus on, all right, local beer is good beer. Yeah. Oh, man, this is so cool. So this pitch line pills, <laughs> I didn't even know you were going to have it until like yesterday. So I feel like I'm getting a special treat. You were the first official customer. Say that one more time. You were the first official customer of Pitchline Pills version four. Thank you, Chris. So I'm yeah, coming in two weeks, and that's gone. G give me two other beers that, that, that I will have, and then also you could tell me about there's a beer that's coming up that's triple de decoction also. So there's three beers you got to tell me about. Um, so we always have a triple decoction beer on. Uh, Tenor, which is our 10 Plato, you know, 4% uh, beer, which – I think a lot of breweries look at and scratch their head or consumers would like, so our lowest alcohol beer is actually our most labor-intensive beer to make, right? But we do that because we want to we want to have the most flavor possible for that 4% beer. So Tenor uh, is triple decocted. Um, we do a lot of beers that are enhanced double decocted, which has the boil time of a triple, but it's slightly lower in terms of uh, labor. Um, so we have a, a, a Dunkel in Vienna coming out. Uh, and then the beer that's doing really, really well for us that I think people should try is Salem Lager. It's our year-round Hellas that's available in 16-ounce uh, cans and in draft as well. Uh, and that's a beer we really marry um, the Munich Bavarian process in terms of uh, how we make that beer. That beer is not decocted. And so 
decoctions are a really great tool, but I don't think it's always appropriate for all beers. And Hellas, we have this different goal. Our goal of Hellas is to have this honey and grape character in the beer, where I think decoction gets in the way of that. We have these other, this additional process or other process with the Hellas to get that, you know, really, really signature grapey honey character that Munich has. Um, that in a way, I don't think you can, you can, you can get there with, with decoction. So um, decoction is not the end all. It's definitely a good tool for the beers that you want to have that impact on or have that flavor impact on, but not always like the end goal. Um, so yeah, Selim Lager is a great one as well to, to, to look forward to. So I'm here at Charles River Speedway. So this is technically Notch Brewing, Brighton, Boston. You said, yeah. <laughs> and sorry, I'm on one mic. We're doing remote first time in a long time. Thank you, Heritage Radio Network. But I want to try everything here. I, I remember like first time I, I went to, to Notch Brewing in Salem with some other friends we recorded a show. I think you only had three or four of the Lucre handles on then, but now here at the new location in Brighton, you've got several towers of Lucre. Yeah, so we always have. So they, they split. So all those there's four handles, but two towers they split. Uh, but we always have four check loggers on. We all will have two two um, strengths of pale, a pullet mave, and a dark either tamave or churney. All times, all the time in uh, in in. Uh, in Brighton, uh, Salem, we typically, um, have the same, same selection, you know, um, and cause people want to roll in and be able to have, you know, our check pour through Lucre faucet with dense creamy foam in the, in the check mug. And we want to make sure we have that experience, but we always lay on top of that, uh, our German lagers. Uh, and then, um, you know, we do hoppy New England ales too, you know, because that's something we love and we don't shy away from that. Then the last thing, last year when I saw you in Salem at Notch Brewing, you gave me this whole selection of different cans of yours. And one that stood out was the, the lightly smoked beer. Tell me about that, and also I'll tell you what, what's, what's cooking for next year in terms of smoked beer. So we have a Rauch beer on at all times, uh, or we try to have a Rauch beer at all times, because uh, Bomberg um, you know, smokes lager, something that I, I love. And so we have a, basically a pale, which is um, – uh, a Hellas Rock beer called Lost in the Dream. Uh, we have an Amber that's on right now, Amber Rock beer called Fire Walk With Me, which is a Twin Peaks David Lynch reference. Uh, and then we have uh, Beer Saul, which is a, 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 a dark um, uh, Bomberg lager. And then we have a fourth, which is not of, of a Bomberg influence, but um, Grodzicki, which is an oak-smoked uh, Polish wheat beer which we do once a year and we love. It's a really just an oddball beer. So, yeah, we, we, uh, we have a high affinity for all those beers, um, all the rug, the rug beers. We love them quite a bit. Yeah, if those are your fans of uh, Mr. John Hall, a writer, he's got a site. It's a secret Instagram site. It's called TW Rock Beer. This Week in Rock Beer. Check it out. There's like six posts, but I think if you send them $30, you're going to get a Camp Rock Beer T-shirt. And... Uh, you never know. Maybe we'll come up here next summer and do a Camp Rauch beer event. Right, Chris? I have to call John out because he called it Rausch beer. I just, I got to call him out, you know? Like you got you to go with the German pronunciation. Well, you're fortunate you got to travel. I mean, again, let's just go back. Fill us in. Evan Rail, your early influence in Czech beers. Wow. I mean, for most of us, you were way ahead of the game. What, what made you go then? And how did you get to meet Evan Rail and tell us about him? You know, I, I think part of it was because I, I had brewed uh, ale only for so long. And when uh, the company I was with sold, 
it allowed me to breathe a little bit and be a consumer. And as a consumer, I realized I just want to drink beers that are, you know, 4% alcohol. And there weren't a lot. This is, like, you know, 2005. And in 2005, brewers are doing, you know, six, seven, eight percent beers and bombers. And I had no interest in that. It's not how I consume beer. I consume beer in volume and lower alcohol and like to sit around and hang out and enjoy that and, and you know, walk a straight line home. So um, Czech Republic was always on my list. Um, so Czech Republic and then Munich and Bamberg, you know, it was my first trip there. And it was epiphany for me because... You know, I, I sat in, you know, beer bars in, in uh, our beer halls in, in Czech Republic where the beer was Desika. It was basically the tenor that we produce here, wildly flavorful, 4%. And I could have four in function. And they were some of the best tasting beers I've ever had. And so for brewer, you know, for a brewer to be able to achieve that was definitely a process goal um, that I wanted to, to, to get to. And so that's really why, you know, I, I got in, involved with that. And then Evan... I'm not sure how Evan and I got in contact. Um, I think I just reached out to him and said, hey, man, I'm going to be in the Czech Republic. I've, I've been once as just basically just a tourist, and the second time back, I I reached out to him because I I'd read his writing, and, and um, I ever wanted to understand a little bit more, and you know, not knowing the language very well, and he had lived there for a bit and knew the language, just to have someone to, to kind of coach me through it. Uh, you know, so he was a great help. Um, to, you know, and then I've just met a host of people since then in the Czech Republic. Um, just before COVID hit, Brianna and I, my production brewer, our, our production brewer, who's since left um, on good terms, and you know I love her to death and I miss her, uh, but you know she she's left for other opportunities. Uh, but we got a chance to go to the Czech Republic. We brewed uh, three different breweries while we were there. Um, went to the University of Chemistry in Prague and did some coursework there, and um, with the, with the professors there, and, and just to you know basically you know advance our ability to, to brew and. I don't understand Czech lager. So I it just, I don't know. It's like, why does any brewer want to do anything? It's like they, they have a certain affinity for the beers and typically the beers they want to drink. At least I hope it is. And for me, it's like, I want to get deep in the beers I, I love to consume. I don't make beers for other people. I, I make them for myself and maybe that's why we're a niche, you know? Well, I, I think all, all good beers are going to be niche because, um, you know, it's like anything. Good cheese are giving homage to our friend Ann Sachs will be, help promote American farmstead cheeses. They're, they're all small producers. Jasper Hill, I got the, um, just got today. Uh, sorry, man. <laughs> I had this pitch line fills. I can't remember, but some Jasper Hill cheeses and uh, <laughs> farmstead cheeses as well. But wow, that's it, man. So thanks so much, Chris, uh, for joining me here on Heritage Radio Network. And c- congrats to everyone on the, on the team. Thanks for this being the 600th episode. I got to go because I'm going to have more of this pitch line pills. Thanks so much. See you guys. Bye. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.